It is not hard to see why a song like that would be written back in the mid-60s, uh, the era of Mad Men, a long time before Me Too. Uh, a song in which someone is, is reckoning with how those with authority would prey upon those in their vulnerability because they had less authority in which to defend themselves. And in that season where those who are vulnerable are made to feel that vulnerability so much more, there's almost a sense in which they refuse to be vulnerable ever again. What happens though when you believe that everyone is accountable to something and to someone that makes them humble? What happens when you believe that you belong to the greatest love of the universe and that is all on account of a mercy that has come to you that changes the way you think about being vulnerable? It may even change your willingness to be vulnerable, even in the most vulnerable relationships. What? No. Come on, come on, come on. How does a schmaltzy film like Dirty Dancing become a cult classic? How does something so full of sentimentality and yet songs we can't get out of our heads, how does that retain its collective interest in a society? And there are all sorts of theories why that would be. One theory that might work is that dancing, when it comes to dancing, the dancing in that film is more than dancing that to portray dancing and the community that surrounds it and the community that expresses itself in it, that there is something deeper about the nature of our humanity and the nature of those relationships that, that dancing is a picture of. And so in a sense, that's why a silly movie like that kind of sticks with us. When it comes to thinking about marriage, all sorts of metaphors that we conjure up to explain what marriage is. One that holds its place is the idea of a partnership. But there is a venerable tradition in thinking about marriage that prefers to compare marriage to a dance. And everything that a dance means, the coordination of it, the, the solidarity between the dancers, the, the inherent uh, responsibility both to lead and to defer, the center of gravity that exists between them that allows them to create all sorts of beauty in the midst of their work on a stage together. And, and all of that speaks to something really beautiful and almost uh, 
beyond words in describing what marriage is. Peter, who we've been listening to for a couple months now, has been writing to early churches under pressure and documenting for them and for us how belief in Jesus, any way you slice it, is strange. It's just strange and there's no way around it. And inevitably, when you think about the strangeness of that belief, it will at least at some point apply to how you think about one of the most intimate relationships we know, like marriage. And you might say that Peter is going to help us understand through this passage what a strange dance marriage is. It's only seven verses, so it's not a marriage manual. He, he doesn't make a manual out of it, and so we shouldn't try. But he is going to offer us counsel in this strange dance, first for wives, then for husbands, but implicitly he's going to surface for us what is an even greater dance that makes the strange dance of marriage not only possible, but potentially very elegant. That's our task from only seven verses. Now, two sidebars, just like last week. Talking about this is going to bring our attention to an elephant in the room. And we're again going to nod to the elephant. Hopefully it'll nod back. And if it doesn't, that's why we have Q&A at noon today. But for those of you that are presently unmarried, who have no prospects of being married anytime soon, and you're just about ready to click this off because you, doesn't think, you don't think it applies to you, let me just say with humility that what animates and cultivates and restrains and beautifies that which is in a marriage is as applicable to those who are unmarried as those who are married. So I hope you might even continue with this and hear something beautiful in the midst of it. So let's listen to seven verses and see if we can understand this strange dance that is marriage a little better. Our central text for today is found in 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The word of the Lord. Speaking of marriage, it appears to be mating season for the frogs. So if that happens, pardon the interruption. Let's be honest, the words that you just heard to our modern ears, ancient words, they, upon just a, a first superficial hearing, might 
make you conclude. I'd rather those ancient words just stay in the past. And I can understand that perspective. But if you would be as enlightened as perhaps you're starting feeling to be right now and simply listen for the meaning of those words and the context from which they come and with the dispassionate um, detachment that the enlightenment calls us to be. And let's see if we might just hear Peter on his own terms. Those words don't come out of nowhere. They derive from a context. And the Old Testament reading that you heard earlier from Genesis 2, before that, if you know that story, you know that in Genesis 1, you hear the Lord say, let us make man in our own image, the image of God. Let us create them male and female. He created them. And then in chapter 1, verse 28 of Genesis, he says, and he blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and then gives them all their marching orders to fulfill that cultural mandate. It's not, he said and blessed him, and then, you know, go tell her when we're done here. It was, he said to them, he blessed them. What do we derive from even the earliest moments of Genesis's narrative? That there's an equal dignity conferred upon male and female. And then in Genesis 2, with that that shared essence, that shared dignity between them. We, we see the Lord saying unto the man, um, it's not good for him to be alone. And so he supplies for them in the Hebrew an ezer konegdo. What do those words mean? The, the translation you heard there in the ESV, it's, it's, it, it'll do, uh, it could do better. It, it almost feels like when you say somebody is a suitable helper, it sounds like a secretary. That's not the richness of the meaning to those two words. In fact, Ezer is a word that God ascribes to himself quite often in speaking of his provision unto Israel. But when you bring those two words together, it's probably more fitting on the basis of some linguists to think of that word that describes woman, the woman that's brought to man, as one who is out to fill up everything that is lacking in him. As someone who, as some commentator put it, was a necessary ally. The most direct or the most um, literal translation of Ezra Konegdo is one who is a like opposite, like two puzzle pieces. Uh, they share a common essence, but they, they complement one another in ways that each of them themselves don't inherently possess. And that's how we see Genesis 2. And all of that sounds well and good. And then it all falls apart in Genesis 3. Whatever harmony is conveyed by that sense of shared dignity, and yet that complementarity between them, that devolves quickly. And then you get blaming, and then you get accusing, and then you get all sorts of disreputable claims about one another. And then, and then shortly after that, there's, there's curses that fall upon them, and, and in this intense form of desire for approval comes over them, or this intense desire to dominate the other comes over the other. And by this point, you're asking yourself, what now? Genesis is out to signal to anybody who is reading that narrative that there is something deeply troubling at the root of our very being that is manifest in those relationships between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. And even if you don't even believe in God or even believe in Genesis, you probably agree with that characteristic, that characterization. You know it. You've experienced it. You may be in the middle of it. There is a sense in which there is something at our root of our being that is broken. And in that brokenness, all sorts of awfulness follows. And even with that common belief, whether you believe in God or not, 
it raises a question that I think you also ask yourself, and that is this. How do two people who share a common dignity, who, who complement one another in distinct and unique ways, how can they love one another as one when between them there is something highly capable of tearing them apart? How do they function in that way? If you got married, you got advice. Everybody told you what it was going to take for it to work. And therefore, you entered into a marriage with a certain theory of marriage. What it was, what it was for, what it would take. And you just do that. It's, it's an inevitable inclination in anybody that chooses to be married. And yet, given the extent to which marriages are torn asunder on every day, and the extent to which now increasingly people are trying to avoid that that vulnerable kind of covenantal relationship entirely, obviously we're in need of counsel. We're in need of understanding. And Peter in this passage is out to offer counsel. And he offers that counsel, first of all, to wives. Saying that this dance that marriage is, as strange as people might think of it, requires at least two things on the part of the wife. Uh, a particular kind of deference and a deep kind of radiance. Let's take each one of those very briefly. A particular kind of deference. What does it mean for a wife to relate to a husband? The, the words right out of the chute are, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Not women to men, but wives to husbands. That once you enter into that kind of a relationship, uh, a particular kind of deference is called upon by the wife. Now, if you hear those words, I, I can hear the eye rolling from here. I can hear the chuckling or the murmuring from here. And, and that is an understandable response. And yet, if you automatically think you know what Peter means by being subject, you're wrong. He doesn't specify that. It's not a manual, right? We, we've said that. This is not a manual. It's seven verses. However, I think we can infer a little bit of his meaning from the example that he gives. And it's a very particular example of where this applies in those early days of the early church. He says, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Why? So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Obviously, he's envisioning a situation in when there is a wife who believes whose husband does not yet believe. And just from that scenario that he paints for us, we already learn a little bit about what the submission is, mostly by learning what the submission is not. The submission is, first of all, not uh, a total agreement between a wife and a husband. It is not a wife sharing the same opinion or having no distinct opinions from her husband, obviously, because in this situation, she believes he doesn't. And Peter is not calling upon her to renounce the faith, far from it. So this submission is not simply walking in lockstep with your husband about every single thing that he thinks. Secondly, we learn that, that the nature of the submission is not on the basis of believing that he possesses a superior dignity. It's not on the basis of believing that he is worthy of your submission. This deference instead is entirely based on one's hope in the Lord, as unto the Lord. In fact, both of these, the, this particular kind of deference and this inner kind of radiance, it is 
on, on both accounts, a, a radiance and a deference that is unto the Lord first, if not exclusively. So when we talk about the basis of this deference, why do we have to say that it's not on the basis of his worthiness and it's not on the basis of believing that he has a superior dignity? Look, in that situation, in that earlier day, if a wife would break from her husband on something as crucial as what deity she observed or worshipped, that would quite often invite all sorts of strife within a marriage. It might provoke any manner of embarrassment to the husband, if not a little social cost, simply by the fact that he wasn't able to get his wife to attest to the same things that he thinks foundational to reality. And so you have that experience, and it's imaginable in a scenario like that for the husband to seethe, to scorn, to, to ridicule, maybe to even to try to forbid, all sorts of things. And if you're a wife in that situation, it could happen in both directions, but if you're a wife in that situation, what's your first inclination? to return the treatment with the same treatment, to scoff, to berate, to ridicule, maybe to nag. Who knows? But Peter is saying unto them, who might be in that situation, rather than become embittered to one who does not share your opinion about the most foundational thing you can imagine, show them respect. Rather than retreat into an anger or a profound kind of almost despairing disappointment, Love them. Rise above that. Show them a kind of respect. Why? Because Peter says that form of respect, that form of, sort of deference unto their life as your husband or as your spouse, depending on what the situation is, it's its own act of persuasion. It is a way in which the way you speak in your conduct, pure and gentle and respectful, that that is its own form of apologetic. It's its own way to get across a point that some other form might not. And it's, it's, it's not a passivity. It's its own form of resistance. A resistance that is respectful because he's saying it's through this conduct that you might actually win him over. If you'll sometime go read and pick up Augustine's memoir called The Confessions, he will speak very vividly about his own mother named Monica, who was married to a very troubling and an unkind man, and yet through all of her witness, through all of those years, through her love and respect for him for all of that season, he turned. He was won over. It was an effective way. There's a, a proverb, Proverbs 25:15, that, that speaks in a different setting, but which also has a, a particular analogy here. It says, through patience, a ruler can be persuaded, and a soft tongue can break a bone. This deference... It's not a deference for the sake of being deferent. It's a deference with a strategy in mind. It's a deference that, that demonstrates itself into respect, but it's a deference that is ultimately unto the Lord, not worship of the spouse, but out of worship unto the Lord. And at this point, the elephant in the room becomes apparent. Because just like last week, when we said, that we're to defer to human institutions because we believe that God is not uninvolved in their establishment and entrusting them with a certain measure of responsibility. In the same way here, one might conclude that to submit to a, a spouse as unto the Lord might in factually be something that either diminishes the one who is submitting or endangers them. And that's not a hypothetical question. It's an actual question.
Thank you for calling. Are you in a safe place? I'm at home, so no. I don't know. He's not here right now. I just, um, it's getting worse. It's okay. Can I ask your name? Judith. Judith, my name is Marion. I know. I do. I know you from church. You make the announcements sometimes. You mentioned once that you work at the shelter in town that people could call you if they have a problem. Yes, I remember. Did we ever meet? No, I, I didn't know that many people. Haven't been in a while. No, the pandemic, it's been so strange. Yeah, it, it, it's not bad. It, it's, that's made it worse, but... Um, <laughs> You know, he came every Sunday when we were dating. He sat with me, held my hand. After we got married, he said he was too busy working. He does work hard. He deserves his rest. Maybe I shouldn't be calling. Why did you call, Judith? I get the feeling this time it's different. It is. He lets me go, but he gives me no peace. He teases me and says the church is full of hypocrites, but I keep going because I needed to. And it isn't only church, it's being with my friends and studying the Bible, helping each other, other people. You understand, don't you? I do. And I, I knew he didn't want me to go, but I went anyway. And then COVID-19 hit and um, neither of us could leave the house. I couldn't go to church. So I, I try to listen to the online service or study the Bible when he isn't around. Um, but now he's almost always home and he watches every move I make and I can't do anything right. If he catches me with my Bible or talking to a friend, he's so, so mean, but he never, he never hit me before. I'm sorry, Judith. But he didn't mean it. I mean, it's the stress. I know it is, but. I don't know, just forget about church, and God knows how I feel in my heart. If I keep showing him what forgiveness looks like, if I keep loving him, I mean, after all, love endures all things. And it never fails. God's love never fails. So, should I go to the shelter? Before, I mean, it hurt what he would say, but now I'm scared. I'm really scared. I mean, what do I do? Only you can decide that. If you decide to stay, we're right here anytime. But you could be leaving too. That's an option. It might be the most loving thing you could do for your husband. Really? We have counselors who can help him too. I don't know. Maybe if I just do what he says, it'll get better. Judith. Have you said that to yourself more than once? Be honest. Yes. Yes, I have. Many times. You are a child of God and God is for you. He is love itself. What do you think submitting to your husband in love really looks like? And what does it mean for him to love you like his own body? What he's doing is not okay. That's a, a sobering situation that is happening way too often. But 
to answer the question where the sketch ends is, is it a submissive act to suffer abuse? And the simple answer to that question is no. It is not a loving thing to allow someone to persist in an act that creates harm, not only to the one who is being harmed, but to the one who is harming. Now, there are all sorts of versions of husbands appealing to this idea of their authority that serves to either diminish or denigrate or harm. But that is only possible if you ignore other things that Peter has experienced or if you ignore other things that Peter heard from his friends. For instance, the moment in Mark chapter 10 when James and John come to Jesus and say, hey, can we have a seat at your table when you come into your kingdom? In other words, can we have authority like that? Authority like what we think you're going to have. And Jesus puts it straight up in Mark 10, verses 42 through 44. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Greatness, authority, that to which others would submit gladly, that is an authority that is bound up with servanthood. It's inextricably bound to it. And therefore, any authority that forgets that is having to ignore something fundamental about that authority. All right, we're just getting started. What about Peter's friend, Paul? The, the corollary text that we tend to point to when talking about instructions from the New Testament to wives and husbands is Ephesians chapter 5. You may have heard of it in, a, in, in, in not a few wedding homilies. Paul speaks in, in verse 22 of chapter 5 about a mutual submission that exists between husbands and wives. There is a mutually submissive spirit unto one another, deferring to one another, like in a dance. He also says, though, that wives are out to submit to their husbands. But the primary expression of that authority that a husband has is expressed in a self-forgetful, sacrificial, servant's way. It is not for his own good that he acts in that authority. It is for the good of those all for all for whom he's responsible. And so you hear him say in verses 28 and 29, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Look, more, more about husbands here soon. What Peter is out to say is that a woman's submission unto her husband is not contingent upon his worthiness in expressing that, that understanding of his authority, but the dance, the dance that marriage is supposed to be depends not on a forced submission, but on a willing submission on the part of the wife, sometimes even before the husband even gets what his role is. Rebecca McLaughlin is a PhD in Renaissance literature, and she has a theology degree from Oak Hill College in London. And she wrote an article a couple months ago that's in the resource page of this week's sermon that I really commend to you. It's an it's a article entitled, What If I'm Not the Submissive Type? And she, in that 
brief article talks about how she's wrestled with texts like 1 Peter 3 and Ephesians chapter 5 and, and how she's, she has difficulty in trying to understand what's going on in texts like that. And yet, when she comes to reckon with who Jesus is and the way he ex- expressed his own authority and therefore called us to submit to his authority, she start, something's beginning to click for her. And so she says near the end of that article, she says, Jesus, beaten and humiliated out of love for his people, was and is the perfect man. No one who uses the Bible's teaching on marriage to justify chauvinism, abuse, or denigration of women has ever looked at Jesus. The idea of using authority to your own advantage in a self-serving way is diametrically opposed of what it means to love another person, including your wife. If he is the model, then only that version of having authority fits when it comes to a husband thinking about his authority. It depends on a particular kind of deference, but the second thing Peter says in his counsel to wives is that it also rests on a deep kind of radiance. Three times you hear Peter use the word adorn in two different senses. One is an external adornment, one is an inner kind of adornment, and the first kind of adornment, which is external, it's, it's common, it's easy, it's popular, it's powerful. It's the, the braiding of hair and the wearing of fine jewelry and the, and the putting on of clothes. Uh, somewhere there is a chart in this world that speaks of how much people invest in external adornments on a given year. And it wouldn't be a shock to us because it's a powerful thing to be affirmed by how you're seen in an external way. We totally get it. And what is true of women is also true of men. But Peter is arguing that there is something even deeper that is even more striking. He's not not throwing under the bus the very idea of a woman, or in a man for that matter, ever externally adorning themselves. All you have to do is read the Song of Solomon. All you have to do is read other parts in the Old Testament, which which heralds the the beauty of those who, who take that time and that interest. But he is saying that there's something more striking about an inner kind of poise an inner kind of calm and beauty that will put the rest of that kind of external adornments to shame. Peter is is reaching for something that they might not fall for a more superficial version of affirmation. Um, If you've ever watched ballroom dancing, then you know that in addition to the way in which they move, they take great attention in shining the shoes and fixing the hair just right. And inevitably, the woman as part of the duo wears these elaborate flowing sequined lined dresses. Why? To accentuate her movements, uh, to help everyone to really feel the fullness of the beauty that they're creating out there on a dance floor. But the reality of ballroom dancing, even with all that external adornment is this, the dress is nothing without the inner kind of clarity and deliberateness with which she moves. There is something far more striking about the way in which she uses that center of gravity and pivots off of his pressure and his strength in that way. And, and, and therefore, the, the shoes, the dress is nothing in comparison to the way in which she acts. And that all requires a sense of understanding and dignity about her and refinement that exists from within. And that's because, look, moths can't eat that kind of stuff and cleaners can't ruin it. When, when Peter speaks of women's gentle and quiet spirit, he's not talking about necessarily particularly feminine characteristics. He's talking about Jesus' characteristics. The word there for gentle is the same word that Jesus used when he says, blessed are the meek, 
for they shall inherit the earth. That's for everybody. What is... What happens when Peter is anointed king? It says, God doesn't look like on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And he's saying that to a guy to become a king. This inner radiance is even more striking than anything that would happen from an external point of view. And so in the midst of that, Peter reaches for an image to help, to help these wives who are listening to gather something that might sound familiar to them. And he reaches for Sarah, Abraham's wife. Her story is one to reckon with. She, she laughs when she hears that she will have a child in old age. She, she, well, we'll just call it she problem solves when the promise of having a child hasn't yet quite appeared and she offers Abraham her servant. Let's, let's not take her example too far. But she also risks herself when Abraham takes her and, and, and dwells for a season in Pharaoh's court. But the reason that Peter invokes her as an image to be followed is that she refers at times to her husband as Lord. And Peter is not using that example to tell wives you should tell your husband Lord. In fact, as one commentator put it, Sarah probably thought of using that word Lord as much as you and I think of using the word husband because husband in its original etymology meant master. You probably are not thinking that if you call your husband husband. But in that season, in that idiom, one would use that word as a sign of deference and of respect. And the reason he is invoking her memory, her image, is because she exists in a long line of women who were, had to be reckoned with, like, like the prophetesses of, of Deborah and, and Miriam and Huldah and of the stories that we know of Ruth and of Rahab and of the way in which Jesus deals with Mary and Martha and then in the early church of, of Lydia and Tabitha. All of these women demonstrate that kind of inner poise, that inner radiance that makes them remembered. And the reason he invokes them is because when it comes to this dance, when it comes to this belief, this, this strange kind of dance, there is a sense in which there are some necessary words that need to come our way. Because in that day, to act right by the Lord would sometimes put you at risk. And in that risk, you might begin to wonder whether it was proper. Because a wife in that day who would, again, part company with her husband, might invite all sorts of strife. And in a season like that, it might be appropriate to have to find a little courage. A courage to do what others might disapprove of, but which God would approve of. And therefore, like Tim Keller puts it, one of the most basic skills in marriage is the ability to tell the straight, unvarnished truth about what your spouse has done and been completely, unselfrighteously, and joyously express forgiveness without a shred of superiority. That is the courage that comes from an inner radiance that expresses itself in this particular kind of deference that shows respect out of love. And that is the counsel that Peter is offering to wives should they enter into this strange dance of marriage. And, and he said a lot to wives, what about any word to husbands? He has a few. Now he spills less ink in his words to husbands. Paul, Paul spends more time talking to husbands than he does to wives. Peter, on this type, defaults talking about wives. But what he says to husbands may be less ink, but it's got volumes more implications. To husbands, he says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives 
in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. All right, ladies, unclench. Put down the tomatoes. Weaker vessel. No, he didn't. What does he mean by that? Where is he coming from? Did he really say that out loud? Pause. Let's unpack what he means by that. What is true of our day was even more true of that day. And what is sadly true of our day is that 80% of all domestic violence is ordered toward the woman. It's just the, the bare facts of it. There is more aggression and intimidation and abuse that comes from the male's direction to the female's direction. It's just the nature of things. And in that sense, they are physically weaker, less capable of defending themselves. Obviously, there are exceptions to that rule. What accounts for the other 20% of domestic violence? The point is this, that weaker sense in, in part means something to do with that physical, that physical stature. But it's not the only thing that Peter means by weaker. And it's not about dignity. In that day, which is more true of that day than it is of this day, William Barclay quotes a philosopher of the Roman Empire of that season named Cato, who, who puts things in perspective in the distinction between wives and husbands in the day. He says this, if you were to catch your wife in an act of infidelity, you can kill her with impunity without a trial. But if she were to catch you, she would not venture to touch you with her finger, and indeed she has no right. And then Barclay goes on to say, in the Roman moral code, all the obligation was on the wife and all the privilege with the husband. The Christian ethic, however, never grants a privilege without a corresponding obligation. In that season, a wife was more vulnerable, both socially, economically, and legally, and therefore in a worse condition. That's why when you read the first chapter of the book of Ruth, and you hear not only of Naomi, but Ruth both losing their husbands, everybody who is reading panics because they know what kind of vulnerability they just entered into by virtue of those husbands' death. Weaker doesn't mean weaker in dignity. Weaker doesn't mean weaker in importance. It is Jesus who has Mary at his feet while Martha is running around trying to find all the cloth napkins. And Mary is listening to the feet of Jesus. And Mary says unto Martha, 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 you are worried about so many other things. But she has come for the greater thing, the one thing needed, and it will not be taken from her. This weakness is a physical thing. It's a socioeconomic thing of that day, less so in our day. But it has nothing to do with dignity. It has nothing to do with importance. And so don't get hung up on that word. Instead, listen to what he's saying to husbands. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Why? He's talking about husbands cultivating what we'll just call it is, a studious honoring of their wives. Husbands are called upon by virtue of their role as a husband to become a student of your wife's soul. To never, never enter into becoming incurious about your wife. To continue to ask questions, to continue to, to probe the depths of her uniqueness, to, to ask her questions and to always want to understand more about who she is. That's a studiousness and it's all in service of what? To honor her. That word for honor your wives is the same word he uses for honor the emperor. Stand up, gentlemen, when she enters the room. That's one way of expressing your honor of your wife. 
this way of living with your wives in an understanding way will naturally manifest itself in honoring who she is. And that, and that kind of honor gets us perhaps to a very practical picture of what it means for this distinction between a wife submitting to the authority of her husband. Look, uh, there will be moments in which you're having to make a, 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 a you're going you're to have to work through stuff. You're going to have to work through stuff and, and, and to really lead and to be the head of a household is to consult the full aptitudes and strengths and sensibilities and experiences of your wife in order to make the wisest decision possible because your decision is not about for your own sake but for the sake of your larger family and therefore you have to consult that to, to no end. You have to do your due diligence in that way. But there comes a point in which even after you have done all of that and even after everybody has, has considered all angles insofar as they are able to ascertain them that if you're still at loggerheads and you no longer have the luxury of time in order to make a decision, what do you do then? Somebody's going to break the tie. And by virtue of the idea of a woman submitting to her husband, it's the husband that breaks the tie. He makes the call, and he does so humbly. And if he makes the right call, he doesn't gloat. And if he makes the wrong call, she doesn't pull out her I told you so card. It's delicate. And it happens rarely. And there's plenty of instances, I can just tell you from experience, in which my wife knows a lot more than I do, and therefore we certainly go with their aptitudes. That's what leadership is. But that's the form of studious honoring that we might imagine. Look, gentlemen, here's the deal. When it comes to honoring your wife, that will come in to collide with all sorts of things. And though it is not necessarily inherent to males any less so than it is to females or any more so that is. There is a desire to, to show yourself competent and to be heroic and to, to be involved and to, to make a difference and to make a splash. And, and in that moment like that, when it comes to honoring your wife, you, you kind of find yourself in the same moment that Frozone found himself in that moment in The Incredibles. Love that scene, quote that scene to each other whenever it's appropriate. It's maybe more appropriate than, more, I'm sorry, more, more common than we might like to admit. But we find ourselves in that moment where we are up against having to make decisions and, and, and to honor her is to believe that she is to you like no one else is. And that's what it is to demonstrate honor. When it comes to decisions, look, husbands don't or should not make decisions simply so that they can prove to everybody that they have that authority in their household. And likewise, women's should, wives should not simply want their husbands to knuckle under because the husband might be afraid of crossing their wives. It's a delicate dance and it requires love and it requires humility and it requires prayer often. But that's the way in which it is the makings of true beautiful dance partners. And, and Peter doesn't simply say to them or issue to husbands a bare command. What's, what's out to motivate husbands to act in that way? Some really 
profound stuff. One of which is a real reverent accountability. And it comes in the last verse. Why should they live with their wives in an understanding way? So that your prayers may not be hindered. Sit with that for a second, gentlemen. Peter is saying that one's very communion with God is bound up with whether one is honoring their wife. That if you're not listening to her, God may not listen to you. Charles Spurgeon, the, the British preacher of the 19th century, said, Anything which hinders prayer must be wrong. If any management of the family or want of management is injuring our power in prayer, there is an urgent demand for an alteration. But what is at the heart of the motivation to live with your wives in an understanding way is the same motivation that leads a wife to be submissive to her husband. And that is what happens. It almost misses it. It's almost too subtle for Peter's own good. Why do we live with our wives in an understanding way? Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. The inheritance that Peter starts his letter out with, an, unper an imperishable and unfading an unspoiled inheritance that is kept in heaven, a life of salvation, that inheritance has two signers on the document, and both husband and wife are there. They're co-signers. He doesn't have to deign to, great un to grant unto her the grace that has been shown unto him. They both receive it because they both are made in God's image, and they are both to God through Christ the same. And it is in that sense in which a husband understands that his wife is just as much an heir of grace as he is, that he realizes that to deny that, to disparage, to demean, to harm, to denigrate, is to deny something fundamental about her very identity, but it is also a self-inflicted wound on his part. And so to read Paul again in 5, 28, 29, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. There's the rub, friends. When it comes to the strange dance that exists between husbands and wives, there is a greater dance that makes this strange dance both possible and potentially very elegant. For in that same venerable tradition that compares marriage to a dance. That same tradition compares that which we know about the very Trinity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as also a dance, a great dance. And so C.S. Lewis says in one of his books, in Christianity, God is not a static thing, not even a person, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. It is an image of profound peace in dynamic flow of eternal give and take. The persons of the Trinity are equal but different, each deferring to the other in the love of the great dance. Look, that language is as woo-woo as you're going to get on a sermon like this, and maybe as much as you might hear in a long time, but that image is a picture of the very nature and being of the Trinity, and, and that image of the Trinity has both in it the expression of sacrificial authority and sacrificial submission. In fact, the one in whose name we gather this day demonstrated both in his same person. 
He used his authority as one who was divine to be sacrificial for the sake of the family that would soon become his. But he did so out of sacrificial submission to his father who called him to that task. And that sacrificial, sacrificial submission was a willing act on his part. And so as Kathy Keller puts it, when it comes to a marriage, both the husband and the wife, they both get to play the part of Jesus. Whether it's in the form of sacrificial authority or sacrificial submission. That which is true of the eternal being of the three-person God has its image in this very temporary thing called marriage. And it is that greater dance that makes it possible for this stammering little dance for people who are born with two left feet and who need someone to guide them in the way of peace and the way of what it means to dance elegantly in this life. It is that greater dance through the gospel that humbles us and allows us to see beauty in all things. This son willingly submits to his father. This father gratefully receives that submission and then exalts his son. And this Holy Spirit is one who brings no attention to himself, but points only to the father and the son, and then bears witness with our spirit that we are in fact who? Children who are in submission to a father. Because we belong to him. That eternal thing manifests itself in a temporary yet beautiful thing. When grace is the music of our existence, when grace is the melody of our marriage, it is quite possible that something beautiful might arise between two people who are sinners, who struggle, who feel the echoes of Eden in their souls when it comes to knowing what is true and what is worthy and what is good and what is beautiful. But when grace is at the heart of a marriage, no one is out to demand submission and no one is out to chafe at it. Those who are in the dance are all about bringing attention to one thing and that is to the greater beauty that brought you out into the floor together. And what is true for those who are married is also true for those who are unmarried. That same beauty that exists in the Trinity is the one that upholds you and provides for you and blesses you in all things, regardless of what station you find yourself in. Dancing is more than dancing. And this dance points to something greater than itself. And it is that greater thing that allows that dance even to be beautiful. I'd like to pray, and as I do, I'd like to take pastoral privilege to pray for one couple in particular who is departing from our midst this day, and that is Steve and Ruthie Luce. They're moving to Texas to be closer to their family. And they are a family who has been a great family and offered many gifts to this family for a very long time, and even in the short time that my family has been here. I want to pray for them and give thanks for them as a testimony to the very sorts of things we've been discussing. So let's pray. Father, I give you thanks that you not only give us words, but that you give us stories and pictures, beautiful pictures, pictures that are humble, imperfect pictures, pictures like what we find in the Luces. We pray for Steve and Ruthie as they move to another state that you would bless their travel, 
that you would bless their reunion, and that you would bless them as they settle in to a new place. And we give you thanks for their many kindnesses to this family and to so many other families in this area. Father, help us to see your glory in all things and not to be afraid of what you've told us, but that you would write something between each of us that gives testimony to the fact that your grace is something that we are heirs of together. Help us to bless each other in that and to not be afraid and to do right by you in all things. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.